In a lot of ways, I owe my career in journalism to the rental apartment I lived in during my 20s. It was this little two-bedroom place in Toronto's East Chinatown. I'll always remember how nice the bathroom was, especially relative to the rest of it. The ugly tile floor, the grotty ceilings over our beds that would sometimes leak from condensation, the lack of natural light, or of a living room even. But none of that mattered so much, because that place provided me with everything I actually needed. Most crucially, the apartment was downtown in the city I was trying to make my way in, while still being affordable. I lived there with a roommate for eight years, and I never had to pay more than $800 a month all in. In short, I got really lucky. With my home base locked down, I had the freedom to pursue my career without having to worry about long commutes or really stressing about how I was going to make ends meet while living there. That kind of luck has gotten a lot harder to come by lately. And what's worse, it's happening most to the people for whom a lack of luck could be devastating. Over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw workers get designated as being too essential to stay home. The retail workers, kitchen staff, drivers, technicians, paramedics, long-term caregivers, warehouse workers, these people are also usually considered lower-income workers, making around forty dollars to $70,000 a year, depending on where they live and their city's cost of living. We saw these people get raised up as heroes, and rightly so, because of how crucial they are on the front lines of what it is that actually makes cities work. But despite their importance, their wages haven't really changed. Meanwhile, the price of housing has soared, even in rentals, where most of these lower-income workers live. For these workers who make up the bulk of the rental demographic, places to live are becoming more expensive, more precarious to hold on to, and harder to find. If those workers can't afford to live in cities and have to move away, or in absolutely worst-case scenarios, are actually forced into houselessness, who's going to be left here? Maybe that sounds dramatic, but in Canada's biggest cities and in cities around the world, there are clear trends emerging that make it obvious that we should start to seriously consider the impact of these higher rents. In this episode, we're going to explain how a crisis in rental housing happened, how it's affecting the people we really need in our cities, and what we can do about it. Welcome back to City Space. I'm Adrian Lee. So first, what is affordable housing when it comes to renting, exactly? Well, generally it means that your rent should cost no more than 30% of your monthly pre-tax income. But that's often not the case. In Toronto, around 47% of tenants pay more than that, which means that almost half of Toronto renters are just getting by. And we're not even talking about the people who are making only minimum wage. Things are even worse for them. According to one 2019 study, those folks can only afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment in 9% of neighborhoods across all of Canada, the equivalent of 70 neighborhoods across the country, none of which are in Toronto or Vancouver, of course. In 2020, the average price of rental housing in Toronto was more expensive than it was in San Francisco, London, and New York. One study notes that rental costs in Canada's biggest city have grown two times faster than the average income. And the waitlist for government-subsidized social housing in the city 
is now more than 81,000 names long. This is not theoretical, it's empirical. And it's coming in Canada. It's coming in Latin America where I live. I live in Sao Paulo. And I can see this process arriving in Chile, in Brazil, in Mexico as well as a new wave of financialization of housing. And again, that leads us to the question of affordable housing. That's architect and urban planner Raquel Rolnick sharing what she sees as worrying global trends around rental housing becoming exposed to financial markets. In addition to being a person who has done so many cool things in her career, she was the former director of planning for the city of Sao Paulo in Brazil, and the author of the book Urban Warfare, Housing Under the Empire of Finance, Raquel was also the special rapporteur on adequate housing at the United Nations, just as the 2008 financial crisis hit. And now, she says, she's observing some of the patterns that helped lead to home ownership instability make its way into the rental market, too. Okay, hold up. Maybe you don't remember what happened to the housing market around the same time as when Raquel started her job. Or maybe you don't recall how the Hollywood movie The Big Short tried to explain it to us. Mortgage-backed securities, subprime loans, tranches. It's pretty confusing, right? Does it make you feel bored or stupid? Well, it's supposed to. So let me do my best to do a quick little rundown here. In the early 2000s, financial institutions in the U.S. offered Americans cheap credit and free-flowing loans to buy homes, even if they couldn't reasonably afford them or they had risky credit scores. Large investment firms bought up these mortgages en masse because they assumed people were going to keep paying these loans with interest that got higher the longer they were around, believing as they did that the housing market was going to go up, well, for eternity, I guess. But when the bubble inevitably burst in 2007 and 2008, many people defaulted on their loans and were left with mountains of debt. It also set off economic collapses around the world, the worst ones since the Great Depression. Not to be outdone now, our current recession, which followed the COVID-19 pandemic, is really vying for a spot on that world's worst list. Two catastrophic economic implosions 12 years apart? Not great. But amid all this financial panic, one thing did become really clear. Buying a house became mainly about amassing equity. It was looked at as an investment first, and a place to live second. And that's still a relatively new idea. 1993 is when the first domino fell here in Canada. Under Brian Mulroney, the federal government basically announced it was no longer going to be in the business of providing affordable social housing. It downloaded that responsibility to the provinces, and most of them, in turn, passed the buck to municipalities. This, Raquel says, was all part of a broader global trend. The popular view at the time was... Governments are broken, and they cannot afford anymore to sustain social policies. So education was privatized, health was privatized, and housing was privatized in a way that governments were broken because of government debt. So very simple solution. Let's shift the debt from government to the families. So as governments stepped largely out of the way to make room for the private sector, Eventually, the corporate landlord was born. And what is that exactly? Well, Raquel will explain, right after this. So here's Raquel Rolnick on what exactly a corporate landlord is. It's some asset manager that has control 
over thousands of residential units dispersed in different parts of a city or even if in different cities. There are some asset managers that own 80,000 residential units, 100,000 residential units, some, some of them concentrated in, in one city in a way that they control the rental market. Together with them, together with this process, still some social housing was privatized. The few social housing that was still in the hands of some city's government or some state government were sold out to these asset managers as well. These corporate landlords get into the market of social housing as well. And that's generally how the free market works, of course. You see a need in the market, and if you have the resources to fill that need, that's what you do. But here in Canada, regulations are such that they tend to incentivize corporate landlords to turn a max profit by way of high tenant turnover. That can look like equity firms and real estate investment trusts buying up old units and buildings, renovating them, raising rental costs, and evicting existing tenants for those willing to pay the jacked-up new fees, something often called renovation. Provinces, including Ontario and BC, have something called vacancy decontrol, which just means it allows landlords to bypass rent controls that limit rent increases. And, in Ontario anyway, any new purpose-built rentals are exempt from rent increase limits. All this means is that whenever these landlords are able to secure a new tenant, they can essentially just name their new rental fee. But is that really so bad? Generally, landlords have little trouble finding tenants willing to pay a premium to live in the big city. Everyone wants to do it. And those lower-income renters who might get jerked around in the process? Well, c'est la vie, right? If you can't afford to live there, you may just have to leave. But what might it look like if gentrification expands from a few pockets to engulfing an entire city? We'll be right back after this. San Francisco used to be cool. In the 1950s, Lawrence Ferlinghetti opened City Lights Bookstore to publish all manner of beat poetry. Then the beatniks gave way to Haight Ashbury's hippie summer of love. Then after that came historic moments in the gay rights movement. Then, of course, was the world-changing razzle-dazzle of tech and its promises to make everything better. But these days, San Francisco looks more like a nightmare scenario of what happens when a city becomes unaffordable. That's thanks to San Francisco's desire to lure the untold wealth created in Silicon Valley. When the young, wealthy startup tech class began moving in, property owners and landlords decided they wanted to cash in. The cost of living in that city has since skyrocketed to a level that has made housing there not only unattainable for lower-income, essential workers, but even for those who helped make it the gilded city it is today. Around 70% of tech workers in the Bay Area say they can't afford to buy a house where they work. Not only that, but those people surveyed, that is, so-called high-skilled talent such as engineers, product managers, and data scientists, they can't even afford to rent, which can run up to 4,000 US dollars a month for a one-bedroom. Little wonder, then, that between 2017 and 2019, houselessness in San Francisco increased by a whopping 17%. Even Silicon Valley leaders have acknowledged the problem. The CEO of the software company Salesforce once described San Francisco as a, quote, train wreck of inequality. Quote, 
In some ways, San Francisco is the canary in the coal mine. What's scary is that he might just be right. Martine August, an associate professor of planning at the University of Waterloo, has been tracking corporate landlordship in Canada for years. In my research, I've found that just the top 25 biggest financial firms own 330,000 apartment suites in the country. That's about 18% of the multifamily stock. Real estate investment trusts or REITs alone own 194,000 suites as of last year, which is 10% of the stock. And they grew from owning zero in 1996 to 10% by 2020. So it's just a dramatic increase in ownership and consolidation of ownership by these firms. And they're not slowing down at all. If you look at transactions last year in 2020, almost all of the apartments that were sold in Toronto were sold to financial firms. And the same with 2021. And those were high sales volumes as well. So it's definitely a process that's well underway in Canada. But is it really so simple as to just blame corporate landlords for all this unaffordability? If you're in the business of real estate development and construction, you are going to be chasing the most lucrative line of business you can find. That's Alex Bozikovic, the Globe and Mail's architecture critic, who writes a ton about housing and city issues for the paper. He says developers get a lot of heat for how cutthroat it might be out there. But, he says, they're simply responding to the golden economic rule of supply and demand. I think the problem is that if we are expecting new housing that is built, paying today's costs for land, paying today's costs for construction, paying today's costs for labor, and making it through what is a very complicated system of regulations, uh, all of that stuff costs a lot of money. And if we expect new building to be cheap, we are going to be disappointed. And I don't think that um, it's realistic or I don't think it's a useful approach to, you know, just shout at developers and say, well, you know, they're being too greedy. They should make less money. I mean, it's business. Um, in any other sector of our economy, we don't expect, for instance, um, grocery stores to not turn a profit. We don't expect grocery stores to give away food at, you know, below cost because it's the right thing to do. No one would suggest that that is a realistic policy approach. You know, and when it comes to housing, unfortunately, that is what uh, often people are calling for. It's not really sustainable because uh, you can't ultimately expect private businesses to do something that is going to make them lose money. So the fact is that the public sector has to step in to create housing for those who can't afford it in the market. No matter how our country and provinces shape housing policies now, here's what's for sure. People are coming. Canada has become the fastest growing country in the G7. In 2020, our population was 38 million. But according to Statistics Canada's projections, our country could have 48 million people by 2050. And that's the agency's medium growth projection. Under a high growth scenario, there could soon be 56 million Canadians. And our cities are going to have to absorb that growth, disproportionately so in our big cities. Many of the millions of people who are heading our way aren't going to be able to afford even a place to rent if the prices keep going up. But many of them are going to bring the kinds of skills we want, the kinds of skills we need to make our cities work. So what are we going to do to make sure there are sustainable ways of keeping them around? Martine has a few ideas. A lot of the levers that we might use to improve things for tenants do come from government intervention. So, for example, we could increase or improve rent controls. That would eliminate a huge piece of the business model of these firms. 
which capitalize on very weak rent controls in provinces like Ontario and actually most provinces in Canada. Also, loopholes within rent controls, like above guideline increases, which allow them to charge tenants for the cost of major capital repairs, which increases economic hardship for tenants by increasing rents. Also, across the board, increasing problems with affordability. So I do think that government intervention is a huge part of the answer to how to address the negative impacts of this phenomenon. If we didn't have vacancy decontrol, and we didn't before 1997, there's no incentive to buy all these buildings as investment products. And in addition to this, we need very strong social housing support. So we need to make up for the fact that there's a massive shortage of affordable rental housing in Canada. And that shortage started to grow as soon as the state stopped providing subsidized affordable housing, which used to be built, you know, many, many units per year were being built across the country. And that just stopped. So when that stopped in the 90s, it created a major void in government-provided housing. And these firms have swept in to capitalize on that because there's lots of people who need affordable housing. Alex definitely agrees that we need to regulate the incentives that tend to overly benefit corporate landlords too. But he believes that it's just as necessary for us to really look at the question of supply. He estimates that it's only legal to build a high-rise apartment building in about 5% of Toronto right now. And obviously, that has serious supply consequences when it comes to trying to build high-density, non-condo rental space. I don't think many people realize that, but it's true. And it has obvious consequences. And there are only a few places where it's legal to build new apartments. Developers are fighting with each other for developable land, as they call it, for development sites. And this is the world in which a gas station in downtown Toronto can sell for $75 million because that gas station is in a spot where it's going to be likely, it's going to be legal to build a high-rise building. Um, And that scarcity, that shortage of places to build is purely uh, the product of planning regulations and politics. We could make it easier to build apartments in more places for more people, but we have chosen politically not to do that. And that has consequences. That has costs for our housing market. Another big obstacle to getting the space needed to build these affordable rental units are those good old NIMBYs. That's the not-in-my-backyard crew. These are those residents, often from the more privileged neighborhoods, who attend council meetings to decry the new apartment buildings proposed to be built around their homes. They often say it'll change the feel or the character of the place they agreed to live in. But as Alex once wrote for The Globe, quote, At a time when prosperous cities such as Toronto are facing a crisis of housing affordability, such rules are anachronisms. That the idea of neighborhood character is a euphemism for something ugly. On the surface, it speaks about architecture and aesthetic concerns. But its substance is about who gets to live where and who, especially today, gets shut out. Or, to paraphrase historian Richard White, neighborhood character is often used as a defensive term nearly always something to protect and never to create. But a city often requires a lot of, you know, creating, or also known as growth, to evolve into the best future iteration of itself. And that cuts to the heart of what has been Raquel Rolnick's guiding light through all her very cool jobs looking at adequate and affordable housing for everyone. When it was the special rapporteur on the right to adequate housing, a lot of people in many, many missions and in different debates and seminars, they used to ask me, what is adequate housing? 
how many meters has an adequate housing? What is the adequate material for an adequate housing? So I answer that always with this phrase, housing is not four walls and a roof over your head. Housing is a sort of a portal that opens the door for you, for the one who is living, for the individual, for the group, for the family to access other human rights, the right to education, the right to a good environment, the right to cultural adequacy, the right to health, the right to transport. So the question is not if you have or not have a house, but what is the relationship between this situation, this point, and the human rights that are available or not available to you? Over the last few years, the dogma has become pretty clear on housing. Renting is supposed to be a stop along your path to home ownership, because once you have a home, you have the ability to make money on your home as an asset, instead of just paying a landlord every month without growing your personal net worth. But renting a place to live isn't inherently or necessarily better or worse than owning. It's just different. It's a stepping stone, or it's a choice, or it's what you need to live in your city. I know that well myself, and I hope that cities can keep things that way, so that other renters can find portals to their dreams and not have to chalk that up to pure luck. On the next episode of City Space, we're looking at public transit. A good public transportation system can be the backbone of a healthy city, and a perfect illustration of how little things can be tinkered with, with significant positives or significant downsides. We'll explore the ins and outs of how public transit decisions are made, and why it's not really about getting the very best of what's available. City Space is produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnston. This episode was written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee, with research assistance from Shannon Clark. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to our guests this episode, Raquel Rolnick, Martin August, and Alex Bazikovic. If you like what you're hearing so far, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get recognized so we can keep doing the work we do. And if you have any suggestions or any thoughts, you can email the show at podcast at globeandmail.com. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.